all the theaters that we were dealing with suddenly, you know, shut their doors. And we are very supportive of the independent art house theaters that respect what we do and thrive on what we do. Hello and welcome back to the Box Office Podcast. My name is Russ Fisher. I'm the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for exhibitors. And I'm joined once again by Daniel Luria. And I am the editorial director of Box Office Pro, which is the only monthly magazine exclusively dedicated to the theatrical exhibition business. Glad to have you back. Glad to talk to you again. We keep doing this from the comfort of our homes on opposite sides of the country. You're in New York. I'm in Los Angeles. I don't know. For you, is this becoming a more natural way to work or is it still kind of weird? It's never going to stop being weird. I long for the days when Escape from New York wasn't the documentary. I like the fiction version just fine. (laughs) Yeah, I can feel you on that. Now I'm thinking of which character I would be in Escape from New York and... I'm afraid I might be like Lee Van Cleef, or maybe I just want to be Lee Van Cleef. I don't know. Let's circle back to that idea. I'll go with Donald Pleasance. In any movie, Ah. I probably identify the most with the Donald Pleasance character. Have you ever seen, and there's almost certainly no way this is going to make the cut, but have you ever seen, there's a magnificent Australian movie with Donald Pleasance where he plays an absolute psychopath, Wake and Fright. That's on my uh, list to tackle. I think I might actually watch that tonight. Wake and Fright is harrowing and amazing. It is a spectacular movie, but it is just not a happy one. So if you're looking for something that is upbeat, go somewhere else. But if you're looking for an amazing Donald Pleasance performance, Wake and Fright has you covered 100%. You know, the big thing, as we've discussed a couple of different topics, we've discussed the overall theatrical shutdown that has taken place as a result of the coronavirus. We have discussed the impact uh, that the stimulus package might have on theaters. And we've talked a little bit about the intersection between theatrical and home video windows, especially as relates to releases that were planned to be theatrical releases this year and which have since gone to streaming. So Daniel, what does the landscape look like right now, a couple of weeks after, or really three weeks after the theatrical market was effectively closed by the coronavirus? Like we discussed uh, some weeks back in our first episode, we are seeing select studios go VOD first or shorten the theatrical window, specifically with films that were already out in the market and whose theatrical runs were interrupted by the cinema closures. I think that's probably been the widest impact of this. There have been specific title-by-title cases where movies that were supposed to be playing in movie theaters uh, that hadn't opened yet are now going straight to VOD. Uh, Universal has put out a title like Trolls World Tour, a children's film. And uh, we've got uh, an example like Paramount, which has a longstanding home entertainment deal with Netflix to put the comedy The Lovebirds on there. These things are not ideal for the cinema industry. I think there's a lot of concern from movie theaters as to the availability of content. But it's not a widespread situation at this point. 
we are seeing distributors like Sony moving the vast majority of their slate to 2021. They don't want to take chances, and they'd rather wait out an entire year uh, before having to going on VOD first. We just heard from Paramount earlier today that still very much believes in theatrical and is delaying a number of their films up until... I believe late July, more or less, is, is when we can expect to start seeing new Paramount titles. So the changes we're seeing on a case-by-case basis rather than a wholesale approach. Right. Paramount put the new SpongeBob movie on July 31, which, you know, honestly, right now still seems a little optimistic. And I hate to say that. And maybe for me, that just comes from the perspective of there being so many variables right now. We don't know when things are going to reopen. We don't have good data as far as when we can expect the spread of the coronavirus to really be slowing or to be in control. We don't know where testing is. And so I guess July 31st is a terrific aspirational date and probably everyone listening to this would like it to be a lot earlier than that. I also am reluctant to get my hopes up. Let's put it this way, Russ. It's July 31st for a film intended to be a wide release. So that means that the film has to go through a marketing campaign and cinemas not only have to be uh, reopened, but reopened uh, generally nationwide. I don't believe that's a reflection of when things will start to reopen. I think that's a reflection of, uh, or an estimation of when we might start seeing something as close to a wide release being possible which I I think it's very possible, hopefully, on the optimistic side of things, to start seeing partial openings or reduced capacity measures slowly ramping up to a sort of wide-release scenario. And as we're seeing from other studios, they're still taking a wait-and-see approach. We've got titles like Disney's Black Widow, which is unset, and Disney is keeping that uh, close to its chest to see when they can go out wide with it. Right. And that's actually a really good point. And I like the way you put that. It leads to a sort of optimism that it's like, well, okay, maybe things can begin to reopen in June or, you know, sometime in that range. And then we have six or eight weeks or however many weeks of ramping up to something that looks like business as usual. And then we'll see where it goes. And, you know, Paramount can be perhaps one of the first studios out of the gate with a wide release at that point with the SpongeBob movie. And this brings up a a great point, which is it's not just about cinemas reopening and moviegoers feeling comfortable returning to cinemas with the right measures in place. It's also about what movies are there going to be to capture their attention. And are these movies uh, going to have the benefit of an actual uh, promotional campaign behind them so filmgoers are interested and engaged to watch them? Obviously, there are a number of high-profile titles that are lined up, ready to go, and ready to take a date once things become a little bit clearer. But we did see, I think, some unfortunate news with the decision of Focus Features, which is part of NBC Universal and the Comcast uh, media conglomerate taking a disappointing decision in grabbing a high-profile title, and rather than putting it on the back burner, they went ahead and scheduled it for a straight-to-VOD release. Uh, Russ, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, 
Am I getting the title wrong? Never, rarely, sometimes, always. I always get it, get it uh, mixed up. So what we're talking about is Focus Features pulled the planned art house release, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which was a movie that debuted at Sundance in January to terrific uh, critical and audience response. It is a low-key, very realistic abortion drama that was the sort of movie that was never going to be kind of a massive crossover hit, but certainly stood as the kind of title that could pull a dedicated audience into a smaller and mid and mid-size art house theaters, which is exactly the sort of title that those theaters need in spring and summer as the big budget fair starts to ramp up in multi-screen cineplexes. So now that title is VOD only, which you might even be able to say, okay, that seems like a good idea because you can say it's a movie that has a specific audience and now that audience will be able to engage with it at home. Of course, the problem is that potential for competition at home is incredible right now. There's a lot on streaming competing for attention, and it's very easy for things to get lost in the shuffle. And also, I think one of the times previously that we discussed this, Daniel, you mentioned that Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is also the sort of movie that benefits from the concentrated attention span that audiences can give a film in a theatrical setting. Whereas at home, if you're seeing a sort of intense and potentially challenging drama for the first time, uh, maybe you look at your phone, maybe you get up to deal with the kids or pet the cat or something, and the movie doesn't get to build the impact that it would be able to build in a theatrical setting. Yeah, I think it's an unfortunate decision, both for the film itself in trying to find audience share during a very fragmented and very competitive home entertainment market. And I think it's unfortunate for the independent and art house theaters that, let's face it, they're not going to sell out or even play Top Gun Maverick. That's just not in their wheelhouse. It's good that those titles are there that are going to make a lot of money and that are going to movie theaters nationwide. But these art houses, these independent cinemas, they really depend on the type of title with festival prestige, uh, like never, rarely, sometimes, always. The fact that that won't be available to them once they open back up I think is a, is a big concern. So it, it was an unfortunate decision uh, on the business end of things. And on the artistic end of things, this title that is coming in with a lot of buzz now has to go head to head against the Netflix Tiger documentary. I think <laughs> it's going to be very, very difficult for it to shine through. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm looking something, articles like uh, the Hollywood Reporter's uh, Critics Notebook actually published today from April 2nd, which calls the movie a hero's quest, not a polemic or a sob story, which gives the movie kind of a, you know, a larger than life sensibility. And I think that's a good way to put it. It's a good way to describe the film. And it also connects to the reasons that it's a movie that would be perhaps best seen on the big screen. And of course, we're in a situation right now where a lot of distributors are looking at the content they have and facing a very serious challenge of, we really want to go on theatrical with this. Where do I date this? Where do I place this in a release window that is getting more and more crowded and that has a lot of questions to it? So we've already addressed how some studios are tackling the question of movies that 
haven't come out yet where they can unset them or change their release date. We spoke about briefly on the films that already had this big marketing campaign, this big press push, had already booked theaters, but whose releases were cut short because of the coronavirus crisis. Now, we've mentioned how some of those titles have gone straight on a VOD uh, format, a premium video-on-demand format with rentals around $20 a pop available in many of the services. But I want to highlight and focus on a specific distributor who was in this unfortunate situation of having one of their top titles of the year being affected by the temporary closure of cinemas, and that decided to take on the challenge by incorporating their partner cinemas in a VOD solution that is meant to help the film establish its run in uh, beyond the theaters and into homes, but still help those independent and art house cinemas while they're closed. I'm talking, of course, of the Kino Lorber release Bakurao. Russ, I actually had an, an opportunity to speak with Kino Lorber CEO Richard Lorber to talk a little bit about how he took one of their top films and placed it in an innovative digital platform so viewers that wanted to see this movie could pay a digital rental and half around half of those proceeds from that digital rental could go to a participating theater of choice. Obviously, we're not really anticipating this, but we were kind of covertly prepared for it because we had built out our own VOD platform uh, last year, which was a TVOD platform, transactional VOD, not uh, subscription. Uh, our thinking was that, you know, we don't want to join the fray of all the small companies starting SBOTs, you know, competing with the giants, Disney and Netflix. We are about selling movie tickets in theaters. And we felt that a, a VOD transactional platform is about selling movie tickets. And then suddenly this circumstance arose where we found that 60 or 80 theaters that had booked Baccarat, which was one of our top titles of the year, usually well-reviewed from, you know, after winning the jury prize in Cannes and, you know, premiering at New York Film Festival in Toronto and elsewhere, Suddenly, you know, the, the release was, you know, cut short barely after it began. But, you know, after a strong beginning and, and great reviews, critics picking the times, et cetera, et cetera. But the bigger concern, really, not just for ourselves, is that all the theaters that we were dealing with suddenly, you know, shut their doors. And we are very supportive of the independent art house theaters that respect what we do and thrive on what we do. Okay, so there are a couple of really interesting things in that quote from Richard Lorber. The first, I think, is that, as he says, they were covertly prepared for this eventuality because they had built their own VOD platform, uh, which is something that I think is important to look at in the long run for virtually any indie distributor. You know, everybody needs at this point an extra potential revenue stream and an owned and operated VOD platform is obviously one big option to look at, especially when you're trying to help your movies stand out in a competitive streaming landscape. But I think this, you know, the real meat of this here gets to the thing that we've talked about a couple of times before, which is the fact that not only do distributors lack 
an outlet for their titles, exhibitors are faced with their own costs of maintenance, dealing with the overhead that they have to keep paying while their doors are closed, and ideally their employees that they have to keep paying while doors are closed. And Kino Lorber's approach allowing cinemas to keep half of the revenue from these VOD streams is, I think, a forward-thinking and also kind of pragmatic way to create a solution to a very big and very real problem. That's a great way of putting it. It's a partnership. That's how this works. I just said a lot of words and then you just cut down to, hey, it's a partnership. So yes, anyone who hasn't realized it now, I'm the one who describes things with too many words. It's about working together. I think Kino Lorber saw a situation where a lot of their partner theaters were in a situation that was critical and they needed a solution and help in a time of need. They had the resources of their own home entertainment platform. And rather than simply taking a title whose run was affected and uh, cutting their losses and keeping the cash, they are giving back to their partners and working together in a situation where they can both benefit. Of course, the bigger question is, can this model replace theatrical? If this the wave of the future, is this going to be able to uh, solve all the problems for the affected theater? It's, I think, a little bit too early to tell, and I think some of Richard's points uh, reflect that. This is working, you know, and it's very exciting to us. The scale of the revenues isn't quite replacing what the physical revenues would have been, but it may in time, you know, and we're really doing it to keep the, the basically to enable the theaters to stay in business with some revenue stream and maintain their visibility and their value to their to their customers and their supporters and members, even as, you know, we're trying to weather this crisis with them. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And uh, we keep coming against coming up with new ideas and new opportunities are arising and, you know, questions are being raised. Can we support many of our colleagues, other distributors, competitors, but also colleagues have asked if they can access our platform. We're selectively opening our, our doors to certain other films from other distributors. It's not an open source platform. It's not a white label solution that we're licensing to other companies. We really feel the two key critical components to make this successful are the caliber of the film, first and foremost. Is it a film that we're really proud to distribute and we think our art house independent theaters really want? And two, will those theaters be able to promote it and activate their base? Will they be able to message the opportunity to screen something digitally under the auspices of their theater and and capture the commitment of their customers. Okay, so there are a couple of things in that quote from Richard that I think are pretty important. First is the level of revenue that they can expect to see from streaming a movie like this on this platform. Of course, you face a problem, which is that it's a relatively small title to begin with. They were, I believe they were planning a platform rollout, which means that there was the hope that it was going to build word of mouth as the title went out to theaters around the country over a span of time. And now they 
don't get to do that in the same way, which means that it is even more incumbent upon theaters than it usually would be to activate their customer base and generate some interest in word of mouth for this film. Does that seem right to you, Daniel? Yeah, and it echoes something that our colleague Rebecca Pauly said in last week's podcast, which is even if your doors are closed, communication with an audience is not optional. Keep in touch. Let people know you're around. Let people know what you're doing. I even look at something that Alamo Drafthouse did this past week, which is starting to share some of their recipes to their best-selling uh, menu items. I'm about to try buffalo cauliflower that I've tried several in several trips uh, to my local Alamo. So this is a, an opportunity to use those communication resources that you have as a cinema and engage with moviegoers to let them know this is happening. This is a specific sort of title that, yes, as you mentioned, Russ, it, it's hard to market, right? It's a specialty title. It's a foreign film. It's a genre picture. But we are coming off a movie like Parasite winning Best Picture. And a lot of that DNA in a movie like Parasite isn't a movie like Baccarat. So while it is a challenge to market a title like this and a platform like this to your moviegoers, there is an angle to reach out to them. And there is a sort of uh, way to communicate that this is a, a possible entertainment source that can help these local cinemas. And ultimately, I'm not, I don't mean to criticize because I think this is a terrific program and I think Bukharao is a wonderful movie to begin with. I do find myself wondering how things might work out now if a program like this had been in place some time ago. Do you see a future in which a program like this continues even once theaters are open once again? I think this is a, admittedly from the distributor's position, this was a way to quickly mobilize and find a solution for one of their top titles this year and to help their partner cinemas the company relies on to thrive. So I think of this as a sort of a situational development. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't potential for this to grow out in the coming weeks and months and uh, really beyond this crisis. How it does, I think, is a bigger question mark. This is an initiative that is slowly taking shape. And as uh, Richard Lorber points out, it has to be content driven. Otherwise, I'm not sure it works. The caliber of film needs to be high enough and interesting enough that it can benefit from that extra promotional campaign that cinemas can do to activate to activate their audiences. Now, what is interesting is that, at least in the immediate sense, the bookings for the film have outgrown in the digital sense than in the physical sense. By that I mean is that since Kino launched this Kino Marquee platform, a movie like Bakurao has been able to even find more theaters than it had when it was just on a physical location. We initially started with films that had already had theatrical booking commitments. And so it was already a situation where the theaters had said, we want this film physically in our theater. So that was the first step and was relatively easy to convert most of those theaters to take the virtual screening opportunity. But what we immediately found happening was that on Baccarat, the number of theaters that had not committed 
that never said they wanted a book physically have now come to us and say, well, we'll take it virtually immediately. So the number of bookings for Baccarat was at least double what we had from the physical side. What stands out to me in his comment there is the idea that the digital platform invited theaters to book the film that might not otherwise have done so. And what I wonder about there is the way that a digital platform sidesteps any question of physical space, which is to say, if you've got a two-screen cinema, your choice of bookings is limited. There are only so many titles you can put on those two screens in any given week, even if you are particularly nimble with your bookings. Now, something like a digital platform allows a much more expansive booking slate. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, Daniel, if you think that is a big part of why you're seeing more theaters jumping into this program than had originally planned to book the film theatrically. That's a good point. I think you're seeing a number of theaters jumping onto this experiment because it's a situation that is unprecedented and they are working creatively with a distributor that is showing the initiative to work together. This is definitely, I think, a pilot program to what something like this, this sort of hybrid theatrical, virtual theatrical model can do to share revenue during a difficult period for for many cinemas. Now, on a long-term basis, I think, as you mentioned, independent cinemas and art houses are in a slightly different position than larger cinema chains. By that, I mean they might have one, two, as many as four screens, and they might be fairly limited by their uh, previous booking commitments in terms of holding a successful title over for a longer run. So a solution for this, I don't think will in the long run replace theatrical. Simply put, the revenues aren't there for it to be worth it, I think, for the distributor or for the exhibitor. But I think it's a good opportunity to extend the run of select titles for cinemas that simply don't have the available screens to do so. That makes a lot of sense. Beyond that, what did Richard have to say about promotional ideas and how to get cinemas to let their audiences know this sort of screening service is even an option? Well, cinemas that want to participate, all they have to do is reach out to the booking team at Kino Lorber to be listed in their list of participating cinemas. From there, it's really down to the participating cinemas to reach out to their uh, viewers, either through social media channels or email newsletters, and let them know this is happening. You know, Let them know that this is a title that, that is out there, that is an interesting title that had been getting a lot of praise and momentum from top-tier film festivals, and instructing them to the digital rental portal. Now, as for how moviegoers can rent a specific title, Richard Lorber actually had some uh, fairly simple guidelines for interested moviegoers. We're trying to encourage the individual consumer, the moviegoer, the viewer, to connect with the page from their local movie theater, the theater that's showing the film. The simplest way they can find that out is they can go to the Kino Lorber website for and look at the film, look for the film Baccarat and on that, that's kinolorber.com, Baccarat, and they'll find the film, and you'll see the playlist guide, which lists all of the theaters that are showing the film. 
they can then basically click on the theater page for their local theater and simply click buy a ticket, $12. Approximately half of that goes back to the theater. I think what happens there with that system is that you hope that audiences in any given city will be encouraged to wait for the booking to open for their own local theaters so that they can pass some revenue onto the theater in which they might have seen the film to begin with. For example, when I went to rent Bukharao a couple of weeks ago, I guess when we first started to see that this program was going to happen, the the digital booking for the Lemley Theaters in Los Angeles, uh, which were going to show the film in the first place, had not opened up yet. And at first I was kind of like, oh, well, I know this theater in Chicago or I, or I like this theater in you know Boston or somewhere else that already has a digital booking page open for the movie on the Kino Lorber site. But I was like, let me wait and you know wait until the Lemley version is there. It's a week, but I can wait a week and you know circle back to see this. And that way I'm putting money in the pocket of the theater that I would have given it to in the first place. And as you know, more and more theaters are signing up for this sort of initiative. And we're seeing similar initiatives come up from different distributors. Of course, we have a planned initiative from Magnolia still in the works, and we have platforms from uh, another specialty distributor, Film Movement, which is also rolling out uh, their titles. I think the success of an initiative like this is going to depend on the type of titles that are available. I don't think this is an ideal solution for any type of movie. I think as uh, Richard noted earlier, it's really going to depend on the type of movie that already is coming in with an established reputation that you can just activate a pre-existing audience uh, to go see. That being said, when we talk about the end game, for this concept, for virtual theatrical beyond this coronavirus crisis. I'm not sure that virtual theatrical, as we had spoken about, is going to replace the theatrical uh, model. And I certainly don't expect it to replace the current dominance of subscription video on demand, SVOD. That means players like uh, Netflix and Hulu that have this uh, all-you-can-eat uh, buffet of content. And I think it's important to note, Kino Lorber doesn't have those expectations for this model either. This model is not going to put Netflix out of business, but it is nice to enable and facilitate the theaters to use digital to secure the future of the theaters. And it's going to work, I think, and we look forward to a day where this will just be an expansion of, of what the theater can do and keep the theaters healthier than ever. And that ultimately, I guess, is the is the one of the big takeaways here that this is an innovative and forward-thinking solution, but it's also meant to be a temporary solution. This is not the sort of thing that might persist in this form at this time next year. Hopefully, let's say that theaters are able to reopen in June or July, and then this platform can maybe transform back into the VOD platform that Kino Lorber was originally planning, and we can go back to something like business as usual. Precisely. I think it is an additional revenue stream for cinemas that are being affected during this crisis, but it also has the potential to be a revenue stream, an additional revenue stream for cinemas to extend the uh, runs of specific titles that uh, 
they'd love to give another show time to, that they'd love to keep on a screen, but just aren't able to. This is something that can be expanded to uh, cultural institutions that might not have an established uh, screening space, but might want to show this title. So I'm thinking of Latin American history museums, for example, that might just not have the right space to, to book a film theatrically, but can work together with a distributor to find a solution that they can benefit from. It's important to say that a lot of the conversation that we have about streaming and theatrical seems to be adversarial, right? Somewhat antagonistic, streaming versus theatrical. When the reality of the matter is, when both industries work together, it ends up benefiting both of them. Even a company like Netflix, if we look at their theatrical strategy, what was it, three, four years ago with a title like Beasts of No Nation, which was another very popular film coming out of Sundance, that didn't have, and correct me if I'm wrong, Russ, I don't think Beasts of No Nation had a exclusive theatrical window at all three, four years back. Yeah, Beasts of No Nation, like a lot of the bigger Netflix titles, did have festival window. I know it played TIFF, and I don't know if it was anywhere else. It was probably at Venice. And then it looks like it went day and date, so it hit Netflix at the same time as it was in a limited release, which was Bleecker Street, I think. They put that out. And so a film like that, a lot of people didn't even have a chance to see it theatrically because the release was small enough. You know, if you live in a major city, maybe you got to see Netflix's The Irishman or Roma theatrically. There was a point where Landmark Cinemas and Netflix had kind of a deal where maybe you saw The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen Brothers Western anthology in a Landmark theater if you have one near you. But that's not really, that doesn't count as any sort of wide theatrical release that adheres to traditional windows where you get an exclusive theatrical run followed by the home video availability. And I think it's interesting to point out the evolution in the strategy that Netflix has for theatrical, where it went with a day and date strategy for uh, its first batch of acquisitions that came from festivals to progressively having a longer and longer window. I know that we're not there yet for that to work for a wide theatrical release, but we went from zero days three and four years back to about a month-long exclusive theatrical run for titles like The Two Popes and Marriage Story last year. So we've seen the evolution of how companies, big companies like Netflix, that are streaming first, are taking with their theatrical strategy, going from zero days with their top-tier acquisitions from three, four years ago to month-long exclusive theatrical runs for titles like Marriage Story and The Two Popes that came out last year. Now, that hasn't been long enough to, uh, to keep a lot of the concerns from movie theater chains to support uh, these Netflix movies, but I think it's showing a sign of progress. Another example of how VOD streaming and theatrical are sort of working together is the fact that you're seeing some larger circuits that do have the resources to open their own streaming platforms have done so. We have the top circuits in Canada, the United States and Mexico, that's uh, Cineplex, AMC Theaters, and Cinepolis, have their own 
in-house streaming platforms. Now, of course, that's not going to replace their main business, which is selling movie tickets, but it is a good example of how some circuits aren't taking an adversarial position with streaming. They're looking at the benefits and finding a way that it can work with them within their expectations for a theatrical exclusivity window. The AMC business model is very interesting, and I'm eager to see how it plays out over a period of time. Of course, the coronavirus closures mean that AMC had to lean into that VOD offering in a way that was maybe different from what was planned or what anyone expected. And so it hasn't had time to develop quite the identity that it might have if it had run for a couple of years parallel to the theatrical business. And so I'm I'm really interested to see the long tail fate of that. I do think too with something like Netflix and you know Marriage Story having a longer window some of that is also filmmaker driven. You know, you've got Noah Baumbach, you know, Martin Scorsese, filmmakers like that with that name recognition have enough power to command more theatrical from Netflix or to get that written into a deal than many other smaller filmmakers do. And, you know, that's another thing that I would really like to see over time is, you know, if Netflix sees a significant return and, you know, if nothing else, a promotional advantage in experimenting with longer theatrical windows for more titles and, you know, see what that does to their business overall and their subscriber base. I think the the best example of these sort of relationships working is what Neon did with Parasite and its uh, streaming uh, platform and its intended streaming platform of Hulu. They kept it in theaters. They realized the value of going on a big theatrical run. And of course, Neon isn't a, isn't a company that is adverse of of looking at the potential of VOD presence. But they saw what they had with the title, uh, which wasn't an easy title to market, a foreign title. And now they are benefiting from great word of mouth. Uh, They're benefiting from a Best Picture Oscar. And uh, by the time it gets to Hulu, I think there's going to be a lot more interested viewers that want to check it out on streaming. Yeah, I think you're right. And, And while we're on that subject, if you have Hulu, watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which exclusively went to Hulu last week. It's a magnificent movie. We've talked about this uh, before. Uh, we've shared what we're watching during these times of crisis. I have to ask you, Russ, I'm already going crazy watching things indoors, nostalgically thinking back of uh, some of my favorite movie-going uh, experiences in cinemas. What was the movie theater that you went to the most during your childhood? Oh, wow. Okay. There were really two theaters that were formative for me. I grew up in Napa in Northern California because my dad worked for an oil company in San Francisco, but didn't want to live in the city. So he commuted. And at the time, you know, this was the late seventies. At the time, Napa was, was a lot smaller than it is now. Uh, There was a theater called the Uptown, which was a single screen theater in Napa. I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark there in the first or second row, and it blew my face off just like it does to uh, characters in the movie. I was nine. I was not prepared. 
And so that theater is significant to me. And actually now that venue is used as part of the Napa Valley Film Festival. It was closed for years. It's been reopened. It's mostly a music hall now, but they still use it for theatrical exhibition occasionally. And uh, I saw some films there as part of the Napa Valley Film Festival, I guess not this past year, but in 2018. And it was a delight to return for the first time in many, many years to that theater. Oh, it's it's great going back to uh, to these physical spaces uh, for childhood that forever live in our memories, basically like untouched. Right? I'm fortunate that the formative cinema experience that I have is is still around in my hometown of Querétaro in in Mexico, but it's under a different name. For me, uh, I always like going to the movies. I'm an expat from Mexico, you know, that spent most of my life hopping around from from country to country. When we lived in my hometown and I was around 11 years old, the multiplex came to town. We had old school movie theaters, uh, single screens and twins for my entire childhood. And when I was 11, the first multiplex opened from Cinemark. So Cinemark came in with this wonderful 12 screen modern complex. It was completely new to me. And my friends and I, we went every Thursday to the movies, and I'd go back with my family every Sunday. It was a, it was, it was an interesting number of years going to the movies uh, twice a week. And uh, obviously, Cinemark, uh, unfortunately, no longer uh, operates it, but they, it's in very good hands. That location is now part of the Cinemex group. And uh, every time I'm in Mexico, uh, back in my hometown, I go over and uh, look at it wistfully. Yeah, unfortunately, the, for me, the other in Napa, the other big theater was operated by Century and eventually Cinemark, which was the Cinedome 4, which opened in 1982. And that was the first kind of multiplex that I went to. I saw a lot of movies there. I saw Return of the Jedi there more times than I could tell you. I used to bike over there after school and see, I, I think, you know, for a month, I went to see Return of the Jedi every day after school got out. See, um, you're lucky. You, you have iconic movies with these memories. You know my first ticket stub at this uh, multiplex? 1996. <laughs> I, I mean, it, Dracula, Dead and Loving It with Leslie Nielsen. Uh, not, e <laughs> that's, not even Bram Stoker's. No, that's the first ticket sub I have. I wish I had something uh, a little bit more high profile. But uh, yeah, one of my uh, I'll never forget this movie experiences is with a very forgettable Leslie Nielsen comedy. And I love me my Leslie Nielsen comedies. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Yeah, of course you do, because they're terrific. I can't remember where I saw Dracula Dead and Loving It. I will shout out two other theaters really quickly in the space we have. I mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark at the Uptown before. The second time I saw Raiders theatrically, I had just started going to school in Waltham, Massachusetts. I went to Brandeis University, and I had in the interim, lived in West Texas. I came to the Boston area, had no idea what a repertory cinema was. And I saw in the Alt Weekly, the Boston Phoenix, RIP, a listing for Raiders of the Lost Ark at the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square. And I was like, wait, I can go see Raiders of the Lost Ark? in an actual movie theater. And I went and it was not a particularly good print, but it was a magnificent experience. And I've remained a lifelong fan of the Brattle ever since. And it is, is now actually owned by friends of mine who I used to go see movies with at the theater. And in 2000 or 2001, they took it over and have been running it ever since. Well, I'm looking forward to checking it out next time I'm in Boston. Russ, thank you very much again for joining me on this podcast. 
Well, Daniel, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you for joining me one more time. Although I guess that leads to the question, are you joining me or am I joining you each week? We are joining each other in distance, Russ, especially these days. Well, it's great. Either way, it's always a pleasure to speak to you and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye.